Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vitter, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review. And I, along with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shali Meng, are going to be talking all things healthcare data, but with a twist. How does the private sector of healthcare data work together, or not work together, with the swatches of U.S. government healthcare data available? Many would argue that the U.S. has the greatest collection of healthcare data in the world, if we could just utilize it. So how can the public and private sector work together to solve some of our most pressing health issues? Today, we have Justin Finelli, Chief Architect of Defense Medical Intelligence Data, and Michelle Holkel, Principal Architect, Public Sector Cloud for Healthcare and Life Sciences at Google, to discuss these issues and more. Please note that both Michelle and Justin are here representing their own personal views and not that of their employers. Thank you guys both so much for being here. And I just want to, I want to sort of give everyone like a little bit of an overview to start of, you know, how really, how big and how good is the healthcare data that we have? Because it seems sort of massive to me, but I have no idea. Bigger than big is probably where I'd start. So in the 1950s, healthcare data doubled about every 50 years. Now it's doubling about every 50 days. Um, And so we have 1,000 times more healthcare data created annually than the entirety of the internet. All of those cat videos and everything else. So we're talking about over a thousand zettabytes. To give you kind of some contrast, uh, the number of particles in the known universe are 10 to the 80, uh, zettabytes are 10 to the 21. So we still have some room to grow, but we're talking about over 30% of the world's data is now healthcare data. Wow. I mean, that's crazy. Um, Just to build on that, one of the challenges with healthcare data is really organizing it and being able to make sense of it, right? And so if we want to use data in the way that we use other types of, you know, infrastructure, we need to think about the infrastructure for doing that, right? So if we wanted to have water in our homes, we had to build infrastructure to pipe water into our homes. If we want to use data in a healthcare setting, we need to think about that infrastructure that pipes data in and data out and makes it meaningful, you know, with the analytics on top. So, you know, but that's a piece that I think is still in progress. I want to follow up on that. I said, Michelle, your water analogy is actually perfect for the question I want to ask, because it's not just the amount of the water, it's the quality of the water, it's the quality of the pipe, it's quality of the infrastructure eventually forced to consume it, you know, safely. So, Justin, when you when you talk about this increased the size, but I assume it's also increased a tremendous kind of varieties in how these data are produced. For me, the one of the most interesting challenging problems we have been working on is really the issue of data quality. And, and I, so if either of you can speak to how the data quality has been changing, uh, is it getting better or is it getting worse or getting all over the place? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, one of the things I want to tag on what you were talking about just earlier before you landed on quality is the variety of data, right? And that is something that, you know, Justin and I are both tracking on multiple levels. So, you know, not only do you have, you know, electronic health record data, that's health data, demographic data, survey data, but you also have genomics data. You also have imaging data. You also have data coming from continuous devices like wearables. So the variety of data has absolutely increased. And I would say that the quality is largely dependent on 
how much work has been done on those different types of data as they evolve. Also, as you start to figure out how do the different types of data fit together to provide additional meaning. So a good example is, you know, the consumer genomics platforms where people have been sending away their samples to get, you know, some genomic information back. What if you were able to couple that genomic information with the information from your Apple Watch or your Fitbit? So not only would you have this predisposition metric from your genomics, but you would also have your environmental metric from your activity. So if you had a predisposition to coronary artery disease or, or some other kind of heart disease, having the recommendation of, you know, if you were to move more, it would decrease your risk for coronary artery disease by X percent. You know, that could be really impactful for, for people to see how they can actually impact, you know, these predispositions that they're seeing. So it's not only the quality of the individual data streams, but it's also the quality of how we're putting those together. And I'll start in on variety also before data quality, because data quality is uh, harder. Uh, so on the variety side of things, uh, we're looking at, you know, so regular citizen, uh, you know, I have a different health system every few years, depending on uh, who's wheeling and dealing. My data records are all over uh, that same known universe. And so uh, how we look at integrating that to Michelle's point is a big open question. Uh, within the DOD, where I work, Department of Defense, it's interesting because we have, uh, in a lot of cases, people from when they're 18, from DOD over to VA through the rest of their life. And that allows a better longitudinal record, even with the complexity of variety. We're talking about labs, pharma, radiology, pathology, all of those, having that co-located and organized provides uh, potentially a beautiful data set, a much more rich data set. In terms of data quality, very much case by case. When we were talking about those big numbers at the front, with that amount of number, there's going to be junk data in there, right? Patient user generated data, metadata, some of the things that we probably wouldn't even want to store in the first place. And then front end, what can we do about those things? You know, if we have someone, a doc in theater in one of these more tumultuous areas, uh, if there are 30 items on a checklist and they're doing that checklist, the quality of the top five might be different from the quality of the bottom five. So looking at how to solve that uh, is something that we're looking at on a frequent basis. And we go back and forth on whether that's on the tech, on the process, or a hybrid of the two. Both of you talk about integrating, you know, different data sources, right? And one of the challenges here is that, you know, I was talking to one of my uh, co-editor from a government. She was telling me, like, and the health record data, you have these coding issues, right? Because the same disease can be coded differently by different insurance company, right? There, you know, that's a lot of issues there. The second is more broad question. In the health data sector, what are the metrics you use to measure quality, right? We all have this kind of intuitive notion of the quality, but I assume when you're dealing with this many data, you probably have some kind of notions, like what do we measure when we, when we think about quality? You know, I think that there has been some movement towards standards, um, but that movement has been a little bit slow, I would, I would say. Um, and so on the back end, as someone who's participated in the biomedical research side of things, um, in particular with kind of large, uh, large clinical trials, trying to integrate patients' healthcare record data from various different platforms and sources and codings, there is, again, some convergence and some effort to come to standard, standardized data models and things like that. I think that we're either going to have to agree on one standard and all start using it, or we're going to have to develop really smart learning models that can start to extract the meaning from these things. And, you know, another thing that kind of goes hand in hand with this is one of the things that I love about 
the fact of how fast healthcare data is changing is it's absolutely dependent on the technology. You know, so the way that the technology evolves directly impacts what we're able to do in terms of data collection, as well as information extraction and meaning extraction. So, for example, instead of relying on, you know, nurses and doctors putting information into a system, wouldn't it be great if we had a smart room that could just capture the information? And then you'd have even more rich information because you'd not only have the doctor or the nurses or the, the care providers perceptions, but you'd also have the perceptions of the, the patient themselves. Right. And so you'd be able to have those as kind of a living record and be able to do even more rich extraction from them. Um, and then derive the standards from there. So, I mean, I feel like we can't really dive into use cases of all of this data until we've talked about data privacy, right? So the levels of data privacy, whether it's from academic researchers or the government itself or policymakers or, you know, the private companies using this data, what are sort of the ideas of how we can keep this data private or do we need to? Uh, that's that's absolutely first principles, right? So from a privacy and security perspective, risk management is number one for us. It's a national security issue, both uh, within USG and uh, just as a whole. And so I sometimes get feedback that government isn't always uh, five-star Yelp rating worthy. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is that these compliance policies of how do we work with you easier? Why are you making it so difficult? And some of that is security. Some of that's directed security and some of that's implicit uh, sort of compliance type security. So we need to do that. We need to do that more effectively. When we're slow on this stuff, it's slowing down the common good. So we need to do it effectively and then move on. Yeah. And I would say that, um, you know, privacy and security are kind of different principles, but they're absolutely inextricably entwined. In my mind, you have to have adequate security and you have to build the security into your system, you know, at the outset and not try to post hoc add it on. Um, and I think that, you know, with privacy, a really critical piece of that is giving the individual power over who sees their data and what those individuals are allowed to see in their data and being able to change that over time, right? And so this like end user license agreement about companies using your data for X, Y, Z, those need to be understandable documents. Like we need to see people as partners, you know, in the end, the, the healthcare team is the partner of the patient in, in terms of their health. Um, and we need to see that same uh, mindset from an IT perspective of, you know, if the system is going to have the data of individuals, it needs to consider those individuals as partners. How does it work, though, if, you know, we have this this government healthcare data and if, say, Justin, um, the government decides to somehow try to de-identify it, although we know that can be very difficult to do, um, and gives it to a Google like Michelle, how is it that Justin government then can trust Google Michelle to keep it safe for national security problems or Google or whoever else is going to work on this data? How do you trust each other? One of the big phrases within IT right now is zero trust. Uh, so maybe you don't, but maybe you do implement something so that those activities are uh, seamless in a way that you don't have to trust the end entity you can trust in the process. Most specifically, uh, the validation of this privacy, that end testing to make sure that when we run numbers against it, 
you can't pull that out. Uh, there was a famous example from years ago. Netflix did a data challenge and they de-identified everything, but there was one guy in his mid thirties who watched the Cosby show 16 hours a day. And they're like, oh, that's Bill, uh, even with a big data set, right? Because some of those data sets aren't large enough or have outliers that are identifiable. So we're working with partners in industry to say, hey, what are the aspects that either need to be identified or have enough data to be identified. And then we can potentially do something good with it. But uh, that trust and that privacy piece is essential on the upfront. Yeah. So to tag on to that, I think public-private partnerships are critical <laughs> in my mind. You know, So throughout my career, I have been in academia, I have been in the public sector, I have been in the private sector. Before joining Google, um, Justin and I worked together when I was um, serving in government as a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow. And we saw a need there to really develop a community within the federal government around digital health technologies. So one of the things that we did was to create a council for that. Um, and, and it was ama an amazing opportunity for individuals within government, senior leaders across agencies to come together and really share best practices, share what they're trying to do, trying to achieve for their mission and troubleshoot you know, together. One of the things that always came up was the need for public-private partnerships because Government can't do everything. And there are some things that big tech companies like Google do really well. And so why not leverage that um, and create these partnerships? You know, one of the things um, I'll just say about, and, and I'm not speaking on behalf of my current or former employers, I'm speaking on behalf of myself, but um, one of the things that I've been super impressed with and one of the reasons why I was comfortable moving to Google is because of their security. They've been practicing zero trust since before it was a buzzword. <laughs> and as well on the data side, they treat all data as sensitive. So it's encrypted at rest and in transit and now during compute, you know, kind of by default, you know, towards this point of, of really creating public-private partnerships that both sides can rely on. I think that it's a work in progress, quite honestly. I think there are a lot of ways it's been done really well, but, you know, I think that there's still fear and apprehension and it really takes a long trusting relationship in order to, to be successful. Speaking about these, uh, you know, privacy and the utility and the security, all these issues that there is a, a big conversation going on at this moment. Uh, Pero, which is the you know U.S. Census Bureau, um, you know, they have has announced they will be doing this thing called differential privacy. I'm sure, uh, you know, you you all are familiar with that. The the question I want to ask is the in the health you know data sector, what are the methodologies that are being used to trying to protect the you know data privacy and how the conversation is going in terms of this uh, you know if we use the data to to predict the people's you know early detection of cancer then you obviously want the data to be as accurate as possible when you do things like a differential privacy you'll be injecting noise that will you know affect the quality of the, your your study and so there's these trade-offs you know going on at this moment there are lots of uh, discussions with the census bureau lots of user group lots of social scientists are very worried about that the data become you know Private, the you know, privacy protection is good, but but the utility goes down and and vice versa. So I'd love to get uh, both of your opinions uh, on similar issues for the you know for the health data. Right on. So one of the things that the census used for differential privacy came from DARPA, and so the program Brandeis, cleverly named after uh, Louis Brandeis, former Supreme Court justice, up and coming lawyer, writes an influential essay after Kodak starts putting out portable cameras, people are taking pictures at beaches and public places. 
He says, hey, as Americans, we should have a right to privacy. Uh, that really established that 26 years later, uh, no surprise, he becomes this is the Supreme Court uh, justice. The idea of keeping that private in different ways and using different methodologies, I think is on the forefront of all of our minds. I'd say from an adoption perspective, there are some things that are specifically interesting. So secure multi-party computation is a little bit of a mouthful, but this is the idea of mm -hmm. using tailored cryptography keys. This is something like uh, PKI, but distributed computing. I'd say that's more at the prototype phase than implementation phase, but we know what they did at Census. I'm uh, friends with the DARPA PM who put that out and we're looking for ways to implement and integrate. Noising the data in general, but not losing that accuracy is, is something I want to come back to. And then an interesting one out of that is privacy enhancement extensions for mobile apps. So just abstracting away the data so that it's not collected on these devices, if that's what you want, uh, I think will be something we hear discussed and debated for some time. You mentioned um, accuracy versus privacy. Another one out there is accuracy versus explainability on some of the models mm -hmm. and what they're producing. So I, I think those mm -hmm. are good uh, sort of rich policy questions for debate. And you know, I look forward to hearing what social scientists come out with, uh, where the leanings are on that and what ends up making it to, um, to guidance. Yeah, one thing I can add to that as well. So, well, two examples, actually. So one is, um, you know, vaccine passport technology, which hasn't really been adopted in the US, but has been well adopted in other countries. You know, they're, they're um, linking medical records via apps and being able to produce QR codes, but those QR codes change over time, right? And so they're only valid at any one, one instance at any given time. So that kind of changing nature is one aspect to how you're adding in a little bit of a security piece there. But another piece, which is very easy to understand, it's not very technological, with one of the research programs that I've worked with in the past, uh, which is a large, large research program coming out of NIH called the All of Us Research Program designed around precision medicine. One of those privacy controls that they have built into their research or workbench is a time shift. So in this case, the individual's time is not actually their regular, the time, it's all shifted in line, right? So in relation to each other, the time is real, but the actual time is not real. So it's shifted mm -hmm. within one year. So the challenge with that is if you're doing any kind of research that is time-based, seasonality, things like that, you can't really do that anymore. And it makes it more challenging, even like time of day, things like that. It makes it impossible to do that kind of research. So then I had the kind of playing devil's advocate. I was thinking, well, what if a very sophisticated researcher came in and said, I want to do something around flu season. Let me just see when everybody got their flu shots and renormalize them, right? So there are potentially ways to, to get around this, but that is one, um, one privacy-inducing technology that's being used. Or we can just search Google Trends, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, that works too. I know so that one's coming. <laughs> so I want to get into some of like the use cases for all this data. You know, before COVID and actually during COVID, the opioid crisis was what was really on everyone's mind. And especially during COVID, the amount of drug overdoses went sky high. So has there been work that you guys have been doing on sort of these very hot topics like the opioid crisis? Yeah. Um, so I, I knew before I got into this space and, and I've done technology for a while, but I've um, only been uh, hands-on in the in the healthcare IT space uh, for a few years. Uh, we knew these providers were heroes. Uh, 
uh, that got reinforced and emphasized for everyone uh, within the pandemic. And then just working uh, with this space, like it, my uh, heart and mind are full, like all the good emojis on, on what these people are doing day in and day out. I got a text an hour ago from one of the people I'm boarding with here at this conference who we, we had a long night and uh, he flew back and had to uh, provide emergency care on his commercial flight uh, to, uh, to someone who had a much longer night than us. They're fine. Uh, he took care of them and he's texting us and cruising. I think he's not getting back until Saturday instead of Friday now, but another day uh, at the office for him. From a, an outcome perspective and looking to drive these meaningful places where we think we can make impacts. Uh, you, you bring up uh, opioids and it's something that there is a tension. We want to improve this problem in any number of ways. So uh, one of the ways for higher risk areas and higher risk populations, co-prescribe or, or forward load naloxone um, for opioid overdoses for people who are at risk, that is saving lives. So just rerouting some of the supply chain uh, and the other activities based on looking at this data. And so that sounds revolutionary. In my opinion, it is, and it's extremely impactful. But the concept of clinician data scientists isn't even that new. So we started with water back during cholera. That was a doctor marking off data with uh, the neighborhood pastor in London, recognizing that it was the sources of water, not something in the air that was uh, causing all of these people to die. The idea of super utilizers, which uh, Atul Gawande made really popular, is a, a doctor in Camden, New Jersey, who had something in his craw, uh, saw something he didn't like, dug into public data and realized that 30% of healthcare costs in that township were coming from 1% of uh, utilizers and looking at moving that to the left. Those types of things, being close to the domain is super important. If you could just look at data from afar, then Silicon Valley would have solved all the world's problems already, right? And they haven't. So mm -hmm. um, marrying up that uh, specialty to the uh, technology side and the math side is crucial. There's as many problems as there is data and, uh, and it's just a scarcity of uh, talent and a matter of prioritizing. Yeah, and, and on the COVID side, I think that it has been amazing to see all of the data coming out during this pandemic, not only the data coming out and the research publications, but the way that it's been utilized. It's been um, really interesting timing also to see how it has spurred the development of technologies, you know, that could potentially help in the future. So one of those is, is wearables. Um, there are several major large studies that are looking at wearables for predicting infectious disease before you actually have symptoms. And I think it's a very promising approach, quite honestly. These kind of very subtle physiological parameters that you're able to see continuously versus in discrete moments are very powerful. So, you know, we were talking earlier about how the data has gotten better. And one good example is from wearables, how instead, instead of just taking your heart rate every time you go to the doctor, which may or may not be your actual resting heart rate, you know, wearables are able to give you your heart rate uh, whenever you're wearing the device, right? And so you're able to string that along over time and see over time, you know, what is your resting heart rate? What is your normal kind of range? Um, it's been super interesting to me. And I actually, 
um, just before COVID, I experienced a, a pretty bad, you know, upper respiratory infection um, where I was sick for a couple weeks. And going back and looking at my wearable data, I was able to see that my resting heart rate went up a good 10 beats per minute during that time. Uh, and I was able to see that even before I felt ill. Um, so I think that that's a really promising, promising thing. The other is I think that every time we have one of these crises, so during the Ebola crisis, especially, you know, it was kind of the most recent um, infectious disease outbreak that we were all tracking before COVID. We did a lot around semantic language modeling of, you know, Twitter and other types of social media feeds in order to do disease forecasting or prediction around, you know, where people were actually, you know, most affected and most impacted. In this time of crisis, we've also made similar kind of gains around wearables. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see. And I, I really hope, <laughs> I hope that we start to implement these things in a more structured and long-term way so that we're not having to spin these up again, you know, every time we have a crisis. And instead, we have, you know, a long-term disease forecasting capability that grows over time. So speaking about, you know, forecasting the disease or, or pre predicting risk, because I want to uh, uh, bring up another case that's been increasingly get attention, which is mental health. You know, mental health is in a way is much hard to measure. And uh, we just did the episode the last time on the mental health, um, particularly they're trying to do these computerized tests and talking about the uh, increased mental health during the COVID time. So I want to ask sort of both of you, like, you know, how this uh, mental health data had have that been changed, and uh, what other uh, new things you're doing, and uh, what are the challenges there, and is it slower than the other field because it's kind of hard to measure? Yeah, we were just talking about wearables. Uh, that triggers for me. There's a great story from a wearables company uh, that we were meeting with for related pilots, and sometimes early on in these pilots, you're getting a lot of feedback, and there are super users, and so uh, one of the stories was a veteran who uh, was getting anxiety attacks and working one-on-one, -on -one, what they, and I think he discovered during the actual process was his heart rate was racing on one of his daily walks at the same two places every day. And he realized this later by looking at a map overlay that he was triggered by a specific place. It reminded him of a PTSD situation. And so the feedback loop there, uh, I think he's changed his walk since then. And the amount of anxiety and, and mental health impact of just that one very simple nudge or intervention uh, makes a, a big impact. There are uh, a number of organizations that have amazing data. Uh, the National Intrepid Center of Excellence is uh, who does our uh, traumatic brain injury handling and uh, their data science masters, as well as just very open to different types of care. They are refining models for prediction on if this type of or this severity of situation happens, what is the likelihood of which symptoms later? Uh, and, and that's something that I think the population as a whole can make use of. So I think there are strong gains and more to come. Absolutely. I mean, these are sort of incredible problems that you guys are all trying to solve with this extremely sort of incredible data set. But at the same time, I, I sort of always think of the government as a slow moving bureaucracy and that they're not really excited about change. I mean, at the same time, you hear about government buying private data and buying all this stuff and being into it in some capacity. But how do you, how does that work? I mean, are they willing to, to let you guys work on these incredible use cases or is it, are they pro-data? Are they anti-data? Do you have a feel for that? 
in terms of pro data or not, I've been actually really impressed recently in terms of the policies on this. I think you, at some level, uh, probably had to do quite a bit of reading to figure out what the position was previously. And now there's a federal data strategy, and it looks at leveraging data as a strategic asset. And that's pretty impressive if they have this long-term enterprise-wide view of that. In terms of um, can we go faster, I think the opportunity for prioritizing and and hitting the ground running, some of that is a non-zero-sum game. So it's a a win-win situation. There are some some limiting factors on that that uh, I, I think are a reality right now, but there aren't a lot of people pushing against them. So if we could get the right type of talent. And that doesn't need to just be uh, clinician data scientists. Um, This is literally a bleeding problem for the best talent. I have some of the smartest programmers I know uh, work at Twitter, and that's cool. Uh, With all due respect, if you are looking for an impactful career and solving a challenging data problem, this could be very, very cool for technologists, data scientists, even lawyers uh, on some of these policy questions. So very affirmatively, yes, on the data as a strategic asset and and actually making use of that. Uh, It's a matter of, do we have the right people to navigate it so that they can bottoms up, come up with a solution that hits the policy that makes people feel secure and that we're doing this stuff right, affordable, and then we can go faster. We can, through technology and process, resolve some of these delays on the IRBs or uh, privacy office checking. Yeah, and to, to Justin's point about, again, I'm, I'm not in the government at right now at this moment, but having been in that space, I have seen, you know, agencies and, and organizations within the government being very interested in utilizing data and being data driven. And towards that point of, you know, bringing talent in that can actually do that work, the program that I was a part of, the White House Presidential Innovation Fellowship, It was designed to do just that. It was designed to bring technologists in from the public sector into government at a leadership level to really drive technological change from within the government. There are also some other ways to do that. There's the U.S. Digital Service that can also bring people in from the public sector with really great tech talent. And then there's a a kind of a younger generation of new grads um, program that's being uh, generated right now, or that's kind of in development right now. So kind of all along the spectrum, anybody who's really good at this and passionate about it and wants to serve their country in this way through civic tech service, I'd highly recommend looking into that. It's a really great, really great way to kind of get it from the inside to be able to affect change. But at the same time, I do think that there's always a place for this public-private partnership and, you know, certainly organizations that are, are collecting and curating open data sets are, are certainly useful in that way. Thanks to both of you that I know this conversation can go on indefinitely since the problems we all face are just tremendous. But unfortunately, that we are start running out of time. And uh, um, Liberty and I, we always like to close by posing a kind of a, if you have a magical wand, you know, what would you like to do? So I'm going to pose the following question to both of you uh, from different angle that uh, to Justin, since you're now uh, in government, that uh, if there's one thing you have the power to do, what would be the number one thing you like the private sector? to change uh, in this uh, health data space. And the same question for Michelle. What would be things from the private sector perspective you'd like the government to change and you have the power to make them actually change? So what, what would that wish would be? Uh, start from uh, Justin. 
Well, so uh, of course, uh, throughout, I'm speaking uh, on behalf of myself as opposed to uh, on, on behalf of government, right? Uh, tracking. Uh, but um, you know, the number one thing in general that I've always been told is uh, start with the problem uh, within data science, right? And we're clear on the problem. Like we're ready to really dig in. Uh, there are some cases where we have it down to a science. There are some cases where we have it uh, still as an art. So we're looking for kind of a back and forth flow where frame that up to us in a cost-effective, secure, safe way uh, from mm -hmm. industry, frame that up to us and make that case where uh, we can do that de-identification faster, help solve that problem for us so that we can do analysis, uh, tee up some of these solutions so that we can short circuit. Uh, there are uh, different certifications along the way to get there. Uh, tell us what we need to do to help. And then, uh, of course, in general, come work for us. There are a lot of important problems, but come work with and for us, uh, because in, in my opinion, uh, this is near the top of the list of ripe and ready to go. I, I love that, Justin. You know, the, the security aspect is critical. I, I can't say enough about it. You know, one of the one of the things that kind of keeps me up at night, but also excites me is the idea that, you know, in biotechnology, you know, we have an opportunity here in the United States to really be a leader in biotechnology, but you know, it requires you know, not only being able to preserve and do artificial intelligence and machine learning on data sets in biomedical and, and biotech research spaces, but also being able to secure them. <laughs> so what I would say is I'd go back right to the beginning and the infrastructure piece. I think that we need to be very thoughtful about what that kind of data infrastructure should look like and at least figure out throughout the federal government how would you, if you could, from the beginning, design a data infrastructure that would enable data sharing between agencies, ideally between the federal and state and local governments? You know, so if we had had that in place during the past pandemic, then the public health labs could have very easily and facilely transferred information, you know, to the CDC. And then, you know, others who needed to know could also be able to see that information. That would be my ask for, for the federal government is, you know, how, how can you achieve that? Um, and really thoughtfully design a data infrastructure, at least for within the, the federal government and state and local government space. Well, thank you, Michelle. I think that that is one of the biggest things that I think it's not just in U.S. I know UN had this project on the you know global common. You know, they're trying to find ways to. Uh, you know, think about sharing data between different countries, different governments, you know, it's it just uh, sort of challenges. It's just tremendous. And I truly appreciate both of you uh, for coming to this um, podcast today. And particularly, both of you made a call to the general data science community to work on those problems, uh, both for government and the private sectors. And I think probably most important things we should all work together, because this is not a problem that any single party can resolve. It's just by the nature of this problem. So thank you again for a really fascinating conversation. And I hope that, you know, some future episode we can get you back to talk about uh, the progress has been made, uh, the, uh, the, the new solutions and the new challenges. So thank you again. Thank you both so much. And that is all we have today from the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. If you are interested in the links that Michelle and Justin mentioned about how to work in the government, please see the HDSR website. From both Shiley and I, thanks for listening.